Hello and welcome to the Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. Give or take a few millennia, erotic depictions of people having sex have been around for about... 35,000 years, in many cultures, simply a subset of their indigenous or religious art. In the 19th century, the Victorians created the first laws criminalizing pornography after they excavated the ruins of Pompeii and flipped out at the frank depictions of sexuality on Roman artifacts. And with the inventions of new mediums such as photography, cinema, video, computers, and the internet, modern societies have been reacting to porn ever since. But perhaps nowhere as vehemently as in the United States, where pornography has been a front and center target in our culture wars for over 150 years, even as the arguments, the narratives, the tactics, the activists, the consumers, the actors, and especially the technology have kept changing. Here with me to talk about America's obsession with pornography is Kelsey Burke, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Nebraska. She's the award-winning author of Christians Undercovers, Evangelicals, and Sex pleasure on the internet. Today we'll be talking about her latest book, The Pornography Wars, The Past, The Present, The Future of America's Obscene Obsession. Kelsey Burke, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Ira. It's a pleasure. So you tell us that at 15 years old, you defined yourself as a born-again Christian, but one day, like many kids do, you discovered your father's stash of Playboy magazines, and although you were kind of shocked, you were also fascinated, authentic, and invigorated was how you put it. So can you talk about why and how this seeming dichotomy between righteous religious belief and raunchy sex is at the heart of this book? Yeah, I was really on the fence about whether to tell that personal story because the book really is not at all about me. But I think anybody picking up a book about porn wants to know um, what is the author's agenda or um, frame of reference when it comes to pornography. So I decided to tell this story um, that really showcases some of the tensions that I have experienced personally, but that I also think we experience broadly as a society when it comes to religion and sexuality. So I was a born-again Christian as a teenager, was very involved in my local church, um, was very committed to my religious faith. But at the same time, as you mentioned, I, I found this stash of Playboy magazines in my family home's basement and was really excited by these magazines. And I knew that um, cognitively that those two things didn't go together. But in my lived experience, um, that wasn't really the case. They did sort of exist simultaneously. Uh, I ended up um, coming out as a queer person. Um, I no longer call myself a born-again Christian. Um, and I really used sociology to help me understand my own personal experiences um, with this relationship between sexuality and religion, but then also to see how this operates more broadly in American society. So humans have been producing and presumably enjoying erotic images for tens of thousands of years. But the book tells us that here in the U.S., the battle against the dissemination of sexually explicit material actually began in opposition to Civil War soldiers sharing smut. What happened? How did they try to stop it? 
Yeah, in, you know, the United States, before the 1840s, there were laws on the books that would crack down on pornography, but it was rarely prosecuted at that time. And so it really wasn't until the time of the Civil War that Americans started paying attention and taking really seriously um, access to pornographic literature, photographs, because these were really popular in Civil War soldier camps. So the Civil War was a battle over national identity, and the moral character of soldiers was really of great importance. So I write about one really important historical figure, Anthony Comstock, who um, is a part of the YMCA, actually, in in New York City. And he urges uh, Congress to pass what is now called the Comstock Act, um, a series of laws passed in 1873, which updated obscenity laws, most notably when it came to punishment. So it made that punishment much harsher. Um, And he really led a campaign that led to widespread arrest and prosecution of obscenity and really contributed to um, national dialogue, beginning to talk and take very seriously this topic of pornography. So Comstock's name, although he did his work in the middle of the 19th century, really rose up again just a few months ago in the uh, battle to distribute mephestoprone, the anti-abortion pill. But you tell us that in actuality, People like Comstock campaigned against obscenity and other so-called social problems because they saw themselves as a doomed class and wanted to preserve the status quo. What did they perceive to be under threat? Yeah, well, Comstock, as a conservative Protestant, held very conservative views about a range of topics related to sexuality and gender. So that includes reproductive rights alongside pornography or obscenity. He's active in the United States at a change when our culture and society is experiencing really drastic changes. So immigration is on the rise. Urbanization is happening where people are moving to cities. Um, Family life is changing. And so for people who had conservative or traditional Christian values, they often perceived these changes to threaten their way of life, Um, the privilege that they had within society. Um, But at the same time, Anthony Comstock was a figure that was regularly mocked in popular media as being stodgy and behind the times. So um, there's this real tension between what we might call, quote unquote, traditional values and the modernization of American culture. So let's jump ahead almost exactly 100 years. And although porn films like Deep Throat and The Devil in Miss Jones got a lot of media attention in the 1970s, and and you you call it porn chic. Um, Porn movies were mostly relegated to sleazy movie houses, but then, you tell us, two forms of distribution cemented porn as at-home American entertainment. Talk about the VCR and men's magazines and how they brought porn into the living room. Yeah, well, um, when it came to pornographic film, uh, before the 1980s, when 
um, the VHS becomes a prominent form of consuming entertainment in the United States. Um, to watch movies, you had to go to public theaters. So when it came to pornographic films, these were called stag films. You would have to go out, be seen in public. There's this image of the, the, the man in a raincoat, you know, going to some dark theater. But it was a very um, public enterprise. Um, that changes, of course, when we have the option to go purchase or rent movies for at-home consumption. Um, so you can then do that in the privacy of your own home. This is true also when it comes to subscription magazines. Um, pornography, the industry, really fueled both um, at-home magazine consumption and the VHS rental market in the United States. So one of the things that I try to do in the book is trace how, um, even though technologies have changed really drastically when it came when it comes to how we consume porn, um, the same sort of broader themes of how um, it creates social conflict, um, have have been true and pretty consistent, really, as you say, for for well over a hundred years. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today, we're talking about America's long and complicated relationship with pornography. My guest is Kelsey Burke, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Nebraska. Her latest book is The Pornography Wars: The Past, Present, and Future of America's Obscene Obsession. Kelsey, as the Women's movement grew, and I'm, I'm talking here about the second wave of the women's movement around about the 19, early 1970s. Many feminists began to oppose pornography. What were their main objections? Anti-porn feminists say that pornography harms women, um, period. So there's not a lot of room for caveats. Um, today, anti-porn feminists don't make up the same kind of an organized movement like they did, as you referenced, in the 1970s and 1980s, but their arguments are more or less the same, that porn harms women by co coercing them into scenes that are often violent or degrading for the pleasure of both male performers and a male audience, and also that pornography harms women by glorifying what is often called rape culture and reducing women to sex objects. So porn is sort of patriarchy on steroids, encompassing all of the worst of misogyny. Women on the Christian right also opposed pornography, but they saw the situation differently. How did they frame the evils of pornography? There's a lot of overlap, especially today when it comes to feminist arguments against porn and conservative arguments. Um, and I think that we have to give credit to second wave feminists in the 70s and 80s for some of the talking points that conservatives used um, back then as well as today. So for conservative Christian women, um, they would often have similar beliefs when it comes to pornography harming women, but with the addition that they see... Um, all forms of sex work, including pornography, to be not only harmful to women, but to be sinful, to go against God's design for sexuality, for marriage, and for men and women's roles within society. So they see the harm include this moral element in a way that um, secular feminists would not share. One might imagine that the two sets of determined women might unite against their common enemy, but that really didn't happen. Conservative women and feminists had different strategies, and you list them as one is legal 
and one is civil. So what does that actually mean? How did, how did, how did the legal and then the civil tactic, how did, how did that work against pornography? Yeah. Um, conservatives and feminists were often in the 1980s dubbed by journalists at the time to be these strange bedfellows and that they both opposed pornography. I draw from the work of um, a sociologist who's in Massachusetts, actually, Nancy Whittier at Smith College, who compared some of the tactics between um, anti-porn feminists and their conservative counterparts. And she really makes the argument that they were never um, in coalition with one another. They didn't organize events together. Um, they weren't a part of the same groups. And so they had different um, goals, even if their broad framing was that pornography is, is wrong and we should crack down against it. So um, feminists tried to use the law to claim that pornography was a form of sex discrimination. Um, conservatives tended to rely on obscenity statutes that date, date back to the time of Anthony Comstock um, to try to prosecute pornography that way. Ultimately, though, both of those strategies proved relatively unsuccessful because the courts have pretty consistently since the 1970s um, cited with the side of free speech to say that pornography, so long as it doesn't fall into this realm of obscenity, that's a separate class that isn't protected by the First Amendment, but that um, pornography itself is a protected form of speech. In the mid-1990s, as the Internet made its way into people's homes, Congress tried to protect children from consuming porn, so it passed the Communications Decency Act, which criminalized offensive and obscene material. But there was a small provision, and this blew my mind when I read it, of the um, Communications Decency Act, which basically opened the door to unregulated porn worldwide. So can you briefly explain Section 230 and how it led the way to Pornhub? Yeah, so this is a provision that says that the owners of, of certain forms of media, so like websites, are not responsible for the content that users of those websites might post. So in other words, if someone posts a video on YouTube, let's say, that includes illegal material, um, YouTube as a corporation or a company is not going to be held legally liable for that content. So that has become a, a safety for not just pornographic websites, but virtually all of the social media websites that so many of us use and rely on. Um, so it's a really important provision when it comes to how we understand and how we use the internet. For pornographic websites in particular, it has meant that they have not been able to be held accountable if users post illegal content. So either content depicting sexual assault, non-consensual non activities, child sexual abuse, um, or content that's illegally pirated. So that's um, posted on free streaming websites. That's a copy of a copyrighted um, film. Um, so it's really transformed uh, pornography as, as we know it. Alongside the internet, this legal regulation has, has influenced how internet porn has come to be. Pornhub is not only the bete noire of anti-porn feminists and women 
on the Christian right, it also makes life totally miserable for sex workers, a group that identifies as anti-censorship feminists. Can you explain how? Yeah, I um, write about the anti-porn movement and then contrast that with a group that I call um, porn positive. So I don't use the the phrase pro-porn because this is a group that is not uniformly supportive of the commercial industry. And the main target of critique among this group is um, the website Pornhub and the company that owns it. When I wrote the book at the time, it was a company called MindGeek. Very recently, that was purchased by a Canadian private equity firm that's called Ethical Capital Partners. So some of the practices that I write about in the book may in fact change, time will tell. For the sex workers and their allies and other um, activists that I spoke with, um, who work within and alongside the pornography industry, Websites like Pornhub um, concentrate the limited amount of money that exists today within the porn industry to those who are behind the websites themselves. So these are like tech guys who are controlling the algorithms and what's happening on these websites. The money is not going back to performers or sex workers themselves. And that's because this is a model that, uh, that relies on free streaming and shared content. Um, It's drastically reduced the number of commercial shoots that are funded within the formal porn industry. And so it's really meant that people can't make a living performing in porn alone in the same way that they could say 20 or 30 years ago. So for all of those reasons, um, there's a lot of critique and criticism of um, formerly the the company MindGeek that owned the website Pornhub um, and that it wasn't really um, protecting or prioritizing the rights of sex workers themselves. In the 21st century, the anti-pornography movement has been rebranded as the broader anti-trafficking movement. Can you explain how this happened and why? Yeah, when I started doing my research, so I started going to anti-porn events and conferences, I heard repeatedly uh, this word trafficking that was used really almost synonymously with pornography. And what I observed is that the anti-porn movement exists today as this broader um, effort that calls itself an anti-trafficking movement, referring to sex trafficking, wanting to crack down on various forms of sex trafficking. This is a group, though, we might say that we all can agree that trafficking is bad, that nobody should be forced into servitude, sexual or otherwise. But the the mobilized effort around sex trafficking is really led by a specific group of people, um, primarily evangelical Protestant Christians. So they have a particular agenda when it comes to what they call the anti-trafficking movement. And they see sex trafficking as really synonymous with all forms of sex work, so that all sex work is inherently exploitative. Um, so even if it's a woman's chosen career path, that that's something that um, is harmful to them. Um, so they use this language of anti-trafficking to frame the issue of pornography as seemingly not religious, as morally um, you know, neutral, but that it does have these connected connections to a, a conservative Protestant political movement. Is it inferring that mo- all or most 
of the action that you see in um, pornography on the internet is coerced. Um, is is coerced sex? Are they, are they? Is that what sex trafficking actually means? Yeah, and I would say that everybody that I spoke to for the book would see coercion on a kind of continuum. So there are certain scenes that you could find on Pornhub that would be sort of more clear-cut coercion where someone did not give consent. Um, They're being forced into certain actions. So that everybody would agree is coercion. But then there's other forms of performances that we might see where somebody agrees to do it, but only because they really need the money. So for anti-porn or anti-trafficking activists, they would say that that's not consent. That's a different kind of coercion. Um, There would be other people who would say that even performances by people who, you know, readily choose this as a as a um, career path who would have other options available to them that they're still they're they're being sort of brainwashed into the idea that this is good for them when it's actually in fact harmful for so this is where the um, sex workers I spoke with would say that they absolutely see problems within the porn industry when it comes to coercion but that not all performers are being coerced, and that there's really um, space for agency and, t- and autonomy within the porn industry, which is something that um, anti-porn activists would would vehemently disagree with. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood. Enjoy it or being repulsed by it. Today, we're talking about porn. My guest is Kelsey Burke, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Nebraska. Her latest book is The Pornography Wars, The Past present and future of America's obscene obsession. Kelsey, one of the most commonly heard warnings about pornography is that is, it is addictive, that not only do porn consumers need more extreme content to become excited, but that pornography rewires the brain. What can you tell us about these claims? Yeah, the um, anti-porn movement has really based its arguments on language surround uh, about it with science and health. Um, so to date, there have been 16 states that have passed resolutions that call pornography a public health crisis, and they use this language of it being biologically addictive. Um, there's a long history of pornography addiction and sex addiction related to a broader um addiction movement. I think that the science is is still relatively inconclusive when it comes to whether or not we can definitively say that pornography addiction affects us in the same way that, it, that say, chemical or drug addictions affect our brains and bodies. Um, I would say that many of us experience um, struggling to uh, limit our our screen time, um, that we tend to maybe scroll social media more than we would like to. So in some ways, the stories that I heard from people who struggle with what they call pornography addiction was quite relatable. One of the threads that I make in the book is how the pornography addiction um, recovery movement is connected to the broader political movement that I've been talking about, the anti-porn or anti-trafficking movement. And that's because conservative Protestants have really latched on to pornography addiction rhetoric. Um, Conservative Protestant men are more likely than any other group to say 
that they're addicted to porn, even when they actually use look at porn less than their secular counterparts. And that's because pornography addiction really aligns with the um, religious or moral beliefs of conservative evangelicals who see sex as something that is often pathological if it falls outside of what they believe to be God's design for sex, which is very limited in how it should manifest. So pornography addiction is one way to explain why men who believe looking at porn is is bad, that they shouldn't do it, but that they do it anyway. So there's a lot of overlap when it comes to the political movement, often led by conservative evangelicals, uh, to crack down on porn, and then also this porn addiction recovery movement. I would have thought that it that it's terribly embarrassing to make a public admission of your porn addiction. But the book says that that conservative Christian men actually celebrate this shameful admission and commitment to recovery because the new narrative emphasizes the fact that you're like you as a man, you can't fight the biological urge to look at porn so you're a, a much stronger man for actually coming out and trying to deal with it. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. I, I remember one man that I spoke to who grew up in a conservative Christian church. He described porn addiction as the quote-unquote popular sin for all the guys to talk about. So like in youth groups in high school that are often segregated for boys and girls if they talk about um, sexuality-related topics, that for young men or teenage boys, porn is this nearly ubiquitous topic experience for them um, that it, it takes up a lot of space. And that sort of normalizes that many young men want to be looking at porn, that they are looking at porn. But then, of course, we have the added element of these conservative religious beliefs. So yeah, I find that they do this interesting thing with the narratives around porn addiction and their recovery that actually bolsters Christian men's sense of masculinity by saying that, yes, they're men, so they have these biological urges, but they're so strong with the support of God, um, this is often a religious narrative, that they have the strength to overcome these very powerful urges and this addiction. Although this book is largely about pornography as it affects white heterosexual people, you do mention that many of the feminist and queer-identified people you interviewed insisted that porn had made their lives better, not worse. Can you explain how? Yeah, I, you know, in writing the book, I set out not to convey some ultimate truth about pornography, but rather to explain really how multiple truths can come to be told from different vantage points. So it, it is absolutely true that for many people I spoke with, like the men I, I just referenced who struggle with a quote unquote pornography addiction, that, you know, they, it causes problems in their lives when they believe that it's morally wrong or physically addictive and they do it anyway, it's bad for them. But it's all also true that some people, especially queer people, may find that watching porn can be a source of affirmation or acceptance for their sexual desires. Um, it's true that many porn performers have experienced abuse and coercion within the industry, but it's also true that many sex workers choose internet porn as an enjoyable and flexible form of work, as an expression of their sexual autonomy and freedom. So all of those quote unquote truths are um, operating at the same time. Okay, last question. 
Among the anti-pornography activists, however locked into their positions, there is common ground. And one of those areas of agreements is if you watch porn, don't watch free porn. Pay for it. Can you explain why? Yeah, this was one of the interesting observations that I had in doing this work is that we think about these two sides as being opposites to one another when, in fact, there are some places of common ground. For anti-porn activists, they would say don't watch free porn and don't watch other kinds of porn also. But there is the sense that you shouldn't be watching the porn that you can find for free on sites like Pornhub. That's true also for the porn positive movement um, in that in watching free porn, you're not actually contributing to the lives of sex workers themselves. You're contributing to a corporate industry that is um, often dominated by men, that is reproducing harmful stereotypes. So um, I write about in the book all of these interesting and independent production companies and different strategies that people can use if they want to consume porn more ethically, that they can do that. Okay, I want to thank you very, very much. My guest today has been award-winning sociologist Kelsey Burke. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. The Pornography Wars has just been published by Bloomsbury. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on America's enthusiasm and loathing for pornography, one interview at a time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.